You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Edward Kavanagh, Trillium Foundation Scholar at the University of Ottawa and Visiting Fellow at the University of Cambridge. His paper was entitled Corporations, Property Rights and the Imperial Constitution, a comparative reflection on the Honourable Irish Society in Law and History. Corporate claims abroad, especially in non-Christian parts of the world, were always radical, as a slight to the kingship of the monarch whose charter they bore, or as an implicit and rivalrous challenge to the state under whose flag they traded and operated. My research tries to situate early modern corporate activity in a global and comparative perspective. Um, My uncertainty of Irish pronunciation will reveal today that I make my approach upon this country from abroad, and that is not enviable. Grappling with the global history of corporations, the history of international law and the foundations of early modern imperialism, I see in Stuart Ulster both an exemplar and an anomaly. I will attempt to show how, today, um, central to my talk will be the incorporation of the Irish society uh, in 1613. Before we reach that moment and before we wind off with the intervention of Charles I into its affairs over rents and revenues between 1625 and 1641, it will be necessary to traverse the relevant lands involved and to identify the relevant peoples involved in this puzzling story, because it's those lands and those peoples that makes this story puzzling. Now, following Henry VIII's rise to the position of King of Ireland in 1541, English adventurers, as we know, were often dismayed during their tours of the Irish countryside by what they perceived to be its complete foreignness to English land law. Superficially, this was so. Installed at some places was a um, system of a political electoral system of chiefly succession, known as tenistry, which awarded country-specific titles on the basis of seniority. Coupled with this was a widespread practice of sharing estates, reckoned as a form of gavel kind, uh, which furnished tenants technically with the freehold interest and uh, reserved rents and jurisdiction to the Lord. This was different to the counties of England, but never so different, never so incompatible to have inflicted any shyness on the English aspirant men who held out their hands for new titles. Indeed, what this new demand for land required, moreover, what this new constitutional arrangement needed, was uh, the only solution legally possible after 1541, a statutory program of land reform for the plantation areas designed to standardise titles, while at the same time reward and encourage loyal landowners. From these origins, the surrender and regrant model of creating common law titles emerged. Uh, introduced by Crown agents, it allowed for the first largely abortive attempts at plantation by adventurers and the luring of many in the old English and Gaelic nobility into the new English order of things. Regardless of one's historiographical sympathies, it can, I think, should be said that the uh, surrender and grant, uh, regrant model. Uh, well, its, its failings outweighed its successes. 
not only was it relentlessly provocative, inspiring the resistance of defiant old chiefs and regretful new earls in fairly consistent generational cycles, it was also administratively cumbersome, taking far longer to transform the rural countryside of Ireland into the English scene that most on the other side of the sea at least hoped it would become. These plantations, as we know, attracted mostly adventurers, male entrepreneurs, who came to England in order to advance their social standing relative to England, for whom returning to England was the backup plan in the event, they could not secure the favour of new administrators and the respective locals. In the north, things were slightly different, following the orchestration of a resistance movement by Hugh O'Neill and Rory O'Donnell at the turn of the century. I'm presuming you all know a lot of this, um, so I, I apologise for covering old ground. The pair submitted to the Crown in 1603, um, the result was pacified, and some years later they fled for the continent, along with several other Gaelic lords and a number of followers. This famous flight of the earls uh, in 1607 uh, gave King James the perfect excuse to repaint the northern landscape English. Lacking the resources, however, to do it, uh, his privy council approached the city of London. Early in 1610, after some negotiation, James and the city reached an agreement which paved the way for a new corporation to be formed out of 12 London companies overseen by 26 citizens and made up of 55 other companies and called the Irish Society. This company of company of companies was by royal charter incorporated in March 1613. In return for upfront capital investment, the companies of the Irish Society were granted by lottery some of the best parts of Ulster, central to which being Olcahan's country, between the rivers Ban and Foyle, home to the diocese, the diocese of Derry and the county of Coleraine. In this area, refashioned unimaginatively London Derry, during the first few decades of the Irish Society's rule, a predominantly Gaelic-Irish community, along with some Old English, were met with a steady flow of Presbyterian Scottish immigrants who intended not to return to Scotland, but rather to transform into Ulster men and Ulster women and to conceive and birth the same. What happened to the Irish title to Londonderry at this moment? See, for me, I look at other New World contexts and I note that there's typically one of two methods through which corporations establish a fresh claim uh, before their home authorities and, and or against native claimants. Contract was used, and often radically, it was inconceivable in medieval Europe at the time to transfer immovable property rights in foreign jurisdictions, yet this is what a number of early modern companies did, uh, overlooking barriers of faith and language too, and of course the conventions of just price. These are doctrinal reasons why contracts abroad were fickle things, problematic, and probably not so easy as Dutch companies in particular made them out to be. Another method was conquest, and it was also radical, not because the war-waging corporate um, entity was out of place in the late medieval or early modern period. As we know, this was a period of organised mercenary warfare, expansionist city-states and regular private war among the mobility, especially in England and France. There was uncertainty, however, as to the extent to which movable and or immovable property could be despoiled in the process of war and additional uncertainty as to whether those gains went to the companies involved in the conflict or often their distant and uncommitted sovereign master. The Irish Society is different to other New World corporations, though, because it enjoyed a constitutional reason to avoid the recognition and subsequent disqualification of Aboriginal title. Its, constitu its constituent London companies received their land grants from the Crown. Uh, this circumstance only possible after successive late medieval waves 
of English political expansion and legal contraction across the island makes the London Dairy Plantation a stubborn addition to any comparative framework in this period. But its inclusion will be clearer in the minds of historians concerned with a later period of imperial history, when the role of English officialdom was more direct in the foundation of English colonies and settlements, and the Crown presumed foreign titles before granting a portion of that right to land companies. Similarities in this respect might be drawn to Sierra Leone or to Australia, where corporations were installed in colonial settings subsequent to grand, if spurious, uh, declarations of royal ownership. It was indeed a remarkable series of developments which provided James I with the enjoyment in demand and actual possession, wrote Sir John Davies in 1608, of all 3,798,000 acres of Armagh, Cavan, Coleraine, Donegal, Fermanagh and Tyrone. The beginning of this claim can be traced to Elizabeth I's wholesale acquisition of title to the county of Tyrone and to other countries and territories in Ulster, I'm quoting from an act here, by an unusual piece of art of the Irish Parliament in 1569. Um, In practice, the claim of the Crown to the lands of Northern Ireland on this basis was specious, uh, retroactively passed two years after the death of Shane O'Neill, the Act of Attainder, or the 11th of Elizabeth, as it is commonly called in Irish and English parlance, uh, forfeited far more to the ground than the area actually under his control, uh, which in any case was an area incredibly contested by those within his own family as well as his neighbours. The effects of this law were only real in the minds of the English officials posted to Ireland, and were certainly not in the minds of the mostly Gaelic occupants of the region in question. To the next generation of the Northern Irish dynasty, the Act was considered a most antagonistic intervention, one of many which led to a revolt in the twilight years of Elizabeth's reign, when, from 1594, the O'Neills of Tirhon and the O'Donnells of Tirconnell orchestrated a widespread rebellion. The war concluded in 1603 with the conditional surrender of Hugh O'Neill and Rory O'Donnell the context of which we were just given in the previous paper. For their pledges of loyalty to an English king, the men were rewarded with earldoms of Tyrone and Tyrconnell, though they would only retain them for a few years. It was in this period that Davies, Attorney-General for Ireland, led an executive and judicial program of land reform to pave the way for the outright extinction of tanistry and gavelkind in in the imposed English common law in, in Ireland. And that happened by the end of the first decade of the new century. Now, in the midst of all this, the the unexpected flight of the earls gifted James I the opportunity to bolster his title, uh, hitherto based on an overambitious Irish statute and a few regrants made subsequent to its passage to an ostensibly anglicised dominion. That opportunity came about by the organisation and manipulation of mass forfeitures in the north. Now, to establish a, a radical crown title underneath the entire Ulster plantation, all of the lands belonging to Tyrone and Tyrconnell were confiscated. But this was just the first step. Additional measures, and it took me some time to work that out. Being a foreigner to Irish history, um, counting up all the forfeitures, all the so-called escheats, all of the sort of repetitive pieces of statutory law that come in and and create a blank slate over and over again, uh, almost ad infinitum, creates a a pretty unusual comparative context. (laughs) Elsewhere it's um, a little bit more simple. Additional measures were required, therefore, for the 307,208 acres of territory later earmarked to fall into possession of the companies of the London Irish Society, as this land appeared to fall beyond the borders of the abandoned earldoms. 
Still, it would be through the same mechanism of attainder if implemented by different justification, which allowed this land to fall to the crown as well. And to explain this, we have to understand the fate of those who were, in 1607, two loyal Irish knights of the north, Sir O'Doherty and Sir O'Kane. When Derry got a new charter in 1604, it was left under the direction of Sir Henry Dockera, through the, though the land on which it sat, like the wider region more generally, was contested. Over the next few years in northern Donegal, Cahar O'Doherty resided himself to a position of loyalty and appeared to support Dockera's administration of the town until his patience with the heavy-handed bureaucracy of English in the transition-era Ulster was expended in the early months of 1607. After some minor disagreements with an English military officer in early 1608, the once loyal O'Doherty performed a great about-face and organised a small rebellion to lay siege to the town of Derry, and ultimately his head would be put on the stake for those actions, with death in such a manner almost guaranteeing a posthumous attainder, felling all of O'Doherty's lands around Inesowen, or at least those which were not considered Tyrconnells, to the crown. Now relieved, Derry Town reverted to the English administrators, uh, but the land itself was still claimed by Donald Balloch O'Cahan. This was his ancestral land of Coleraine, he alleged, and fairly politely, and it had been unfairly wrapped up in the Crown's delimitation of O'Neill's Tyrone. Indeed, the land, as we know, was contested even before the days of Shane O'Neill. Voicing his claims throughout 1607, never, however, to the point of jeopardising his good standing with English overlords, O'Cahan was much less complicit in his own demise than O'Doherty had been with his siege of Derry, but his fate would sadly be little different. In the heightened atmosphere of suspicion during and immediately after the rebellion of O'Doherty, which one gets very clearly reading just the relevant calendar of state papers, uh, O'Cahan was apprehended and delivered to Dublin quite out of the blue in February of 1608. His desperate petitions from prison went unanswered until a royal warrant for his arrest was delivered on the basis of six dubious counts of treason for which he was sent from Dublin to the Tower of London without trial to spend the rest of his life. The forfeiture of his land was then abruptly justified in an unusual but functional way. It was definitively considered to have been part of O'Neill's country all along, thus leaving, on the eve of Ulster Plantation, O'Cahan's country for the companies of the Irons Society to transform into corporate Londonderry. In the two years following O'Doherty's death and O'Cahan's imprisonment, this area, like the rest of Ulster, was rendered by maps and official discourse to be de facto escheated. Statutory language here, again, confirms and it indicates at least the idiosyncratic fashion in which escheat finds application in Irish legal discourse. Escheat was traditionally a lordly device of reversion. Forfeiture was the more appropriate job of the Crown in the face of high treason. And it was also applied preemptively in Ireland, applied before the ratification of the forfeitures and redistributions in question. Now, with this digression, I will only reconvene if prompted. It suffices here to conclude that in the early teens of the 17th century, all that remained for James was the formality of passing a few bills into law in the Irish Parliament to confirm the forfeiture of O'Doherty's land, along with the exaggerated lands of O'Neill and O'Donnell, considered now to include O'Kane's country and their followers. Just in time, you'll notice, for the delivery of the Irish Society's Charter, in March 1613, this area had become de jure, the crowns before passing into the possession of the separate London companies involved in the venture 
over the course of the following year. Now, these atypical constitutional uh, circumstances in the, in, the, in the broader comparative perspective uh, place the Irish society under no obligation to recognise pre-existing tenurial obligations, or relationships, I should rather say, except insofar as they are rights of tenancy, according to the uh, newly introduced English style, or otherwise some meagrely reconfigured stand-in rights of lordship that were to be enjoyed entirely at the whim of individual companies and local administrators. It was a miserable predicament, understandably, for the Irish of the Ulster Plantation, not just those of London Derry. With but a few exceptions, writes the Reverend historian George Hill, every native landlord and every native tenant in the bounds of the six counties was dispossessed and displaced, with only a few of both classes afterwards permitted to share slightly in the great land spoil in less attractive localities than their own. The Crown's preparatory involvement in Ulster makes the Irish society look like none of the other 17th century Atlantic enterprises I investigate, nor really those in the Indies. But the company is only unique in this context. Changes both to the role of the Crown and to the responsibility of corporations in British colonial endeavours during the long 18th century would combine to generate similar contexts out of drastically different parts of the world in a later period, more about which I can talk about afterwards. Um, Before these changes in the imperial constitution were implemented between 1688 and 1801, only the Irish society could establish itself abroad by grafting its claim onto those of an endorsing English sovereign, King James I, rather than the legally disempowered natives of the Kingdom of Ireland, who were subject by the language of statute anyway, pernicious as it was, to the conquest of this realm by His Majesty's most royal progenitors. This is not to suggest that all other corporations in the 17th century Atlantic ran out and first thing they did was uh, make treaties or wage wars against natives to clear the title. Um, Most did that. Uh, Many dawdled, though. Others ignored indigenous proprietary interests for the longest time possible. Only a few lucky companies had good reason, grateful to demographic circumstances, to carry on in such a way. The Summers Island Company and the English East India Company, for instance, took no steps towards identifying a native title in Bermuda and St Helena, respectively, to take these two English examples because these companies encountered only other Europeans on these islands. For a French example, the syndicate of Jean de Bincourt, de Putincourt and Antoine de Pont likewise claimed first dibs after their scout stumbled across the aptly named Ile de Mont des in 1613. Circumstances such as these were unique to the smaller islands of the Atlantic. Um, by contrast, on island formations in the westerly Atlantic uh, that were slightly bigger and closer to the main continental area, um, the fate of these local communities Uh, fenced in by sea was generally catastrophic, uh, irrespective of the numbers or economic motivations of the newcomers. Thus we may take an island similar in size to that of Ireland and make a tragic example of Newfoundland. Uh, Here a small and skittish population of Biotuk was antagonised but ultimately avoided by companies during the early stages of Dutch and English corporate enterprise until its tragic extinction. Cod fishing, though, rather than settler colonialism, was the name of the game there, Uh, It is no mere curiosity that the London and Bristol Newfoundland Company um, makes the island out to be desolate of heathenistic inhabitants and on those grounds ripe for the taking. I mean, uh, the Irish situation is very different, I mean, for two main reasons, to to, to use this as a segue. Uh, They may have been savages in the English mind, but in a very technical point of law in the early 17th century, they were not infidels. Uh, And that's something that the, the canonistic tradition, especially after its sort of 
mid-16th century explosion um, takes very distinctly into mind. And Gaelic tenure may have been quaint in the eyes of English observers, but it was at least identifiably so. And for these two reasons, what Ireland required and the other places did not was a top-down programme of land reform effected by the Crown in order to clear the way for the companies of the Irish society to become the undisputed landlords of Londonderry, such as I've tried to explain today. Um, Although this kind of tenure endured barely a decade before its foundations shook. Uh, To suspend this story and to wind off my discussion today... I'd like to transport us all to the coronation of Charles I in 1625. Desperate for revenue, the new king was restricted by an anxious parliament from raising new taxes. Here it is. London merchants, some of them accustomed to the favouritism of previous monarchs, faced the brunt of the king's neediness in this period, starting with the forced loan of 1626, carrying well into the 1630s. Specifically at this window, Charles saw an opportunity in the corporate form. He he found in it a loophole which would allow him to contravene certain guidelines set out in the Statute of Monopolies, 1624, and and thereby he granted himself uh, and to his his, his favourite subjects a series of new patents to companies in return for revenue throughout the 1630s. He sort of went about re-chartering a number of companies to line his pockets. He would also foist loans and taxes upon established companies like the City of London itself and those big and small situated within it, Um, many from Edward III's time, uh, most of the old London companies were, and indeed there were several even older than that. Ulster he came to regard as a pathetic plantation. He expected better returns. He expected more settlers to be there. He authorised the sequestration of all Londonderry rents in 1625 and 1628, one of the early uh, sort of foundational arrogant things he did to capture um, the, the sort of the ire and anger of his sort of increasingly growing body of haters in his, in his court. <laughs> and through his councillors, he probed the controlling London interests in his own King's Court of Star Chamber. In 1635, both the City Corporation and the Irish Society were fined £70,000. On review, it was confirmed that the charter should be revoked and that the city and the county of Londonderry should be seized into the king's hands. Yet by his manipulation of the London corporate sphere, Charles here had erred too far. An outraged parliament secured the dismantlement of the Star Chamber in 1641, thus bringing to an end the medieval history of that unusual king's court Rebellion in Ireland and civil war at home led to a great organisation again, but that is a topic for abler historians, um, a community of which I'm happy to be presenting today, and I thank you for the opportunity for talking about this.